kind of interesting that my parents, even though they were not believers uh, at the time that my brothers and I were born, all named us strong biblical names. My name is John, my brothers Mark and Paul. In fact, uh, our middle names, uh, Mark James, John David, Paul Stephen. And so they really dug deep there in the Bible, even as not believers, to, to come up with these good, solid biblical names. You know, one name uh, from the Bible that isn't really super popular among people, in fact, uh, in the 2013 stats, only 14 people named their sons this name, Judas, right? I mean, nobody does that. Nobody names their kid Judas, apart from the liberals who, like, advocate this. I mean, this is unbelievable, right? I came across this as I was preparing for this sermon. The Huffington Post actually talked about baby names, and this is not satire, this is not being funny, this was legit, and it talked about how to like maybe consider naming your, your kids, and it said, avoid overused biblical names like Joshua, Isaiah, Jacob, Aaron, etc. These will only embarrass your son for life, right? That's not the good part. Instead, select one of the less common biblical names that are just starting to appear, such as Judas, Cain, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, and Pontius. All right, seriously, this is the world that we live in, right? I mean, in a few years, I'm sure they'll add to that Lucifer, Beelzebub, and some other great choices from Scripture, right? I mean, it just goes to show you unbelievers naming their kids Bible names. Now we have advocating the furthest away from like the the heroes of scripture, in fact, pick the villains of scripture. You know, there's a lot in a name, and names are important. And as I said, Judas, nobody would want to name their kid that. Now, in the story today, in our text today, there's a lady who Mark doesn't even name, but we do find out her name later on, and we'll talk about that. Um, She stands in stark contrast to Judas, the villain, the traitor, this man who was so selfish who will be forever remembered in that way. But this lady, Jesus says in our text today, she's going to be remembered for something as well, amazing act of extravagant love and worship. And so Mary um, is is the lady's name. We'll, We'll see in a minute who that is. She knew what mattered most, and she acted upon that. Judas rejected Jesus, and he acted upon that as well. So... She knew what mattered most. She acted on it. It goes right along with what Brian was saying, that when you love, you act. When you believe in something, there's action connected to it. Judas rejected, and his action showed that as well. So we're back in Mark, and we're in chapter 14 today, beginning of 14, verses 1 through 11. Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover, and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask the the flask and poured it over his head there were some who said to themselves indignantly why was the ointment wasted like that for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii 
and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go and do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's like a mirror that we hold up in front of us today to reveal our hearts, to reveal what our motives are, what the one thing that really matters and motivates us to live this life, God. And I pray that the conviction of your Holy Spirit might be upon us, all of us in the areas where we reject your Lordship, where we place our eyes on things that we think are more significant, maybe not in word, but for sure in action, that are more important than you, God. I pray that you'll reveal those things to us and allow us to repent of that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we're walking through Mark, we've reached Passion Week for the last few days, the last few sermons we have, and we're uh, two days before Passover, so Wednesday, and this Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Passover, this is coming up. And the religious establishment of the day, they wanted one thing and one thing alone. They wanted to bring Jesus down. They wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. You've seen that throughout this gospel, that they hate Jesus. And so they're plotting and scheming how they can get rid of him. And let me remind you why the religious leaders and the religious establishment hate Jesus so much and want to get rid of Jesus. For quite a few reasons we've mentioned throughout the book. He claimed, Jesus claimed to have more authority than they had. They did not like that. And he proved that by his ability to do miracles, to cast out demons, and so forth. And then he constantly criticized the religious leaders of the day. He criticized their hypocrisy, the way they acted, the way they treated the people. And he was a threat to their way of life, plain and simple. He was a threat to their, um, their, their future. Also, they hated the fact that he socialized with sinners because they had a, he had a completely different worldview than they had. Their worldview was sinners and those who had deformities and problems wrong with them. Those were people who were under God's judgment. Jesus went to those people to share with them hope and to give them life. And then also, he did not have any respect whatsoever for their traditions. Uh, we talked about that throughout this book. There were oral traditions, the things that they added to the law and the prophets in order to say you have to keep these things in order to be right with God. Jesus had no no use for those things whatsoever and they accused Jesus of being lawless not because Jesus broke the law but because Jesus didn't keep their law their man-made laws and so they wanted to bring him down and they wanted to do it by stealth they wanted to do it secretly why did they want to do that because the people were for him they were behind him why were the people behind him because their one big thing was they wanted a physical savior they wanted someone to rescue them from occupier, the Gentiles, Rome, and they thought Jesus was their man. They thought that Jesus was going to come, save the day, run out the Romans, restore them to the prominence they had before. And so they missed this fact that Jesus wasn't going to bring that kind of kingdom, the kind of thing that they wanted. That Jesus wasn't that kind of king, not the king that they were expecting. 
And then verse 3 through 9, we have a, a flashback scene, kind of like when you're watching a movie and you're watching in current time, real time, and then it flashes back somebody to a scene before that kind of gives you then some, some perspective on the current scene. That's what's going to happen in verse 3 through 9. It's not in sequential order, but Mark does this purposely. He wants us to see the contrast, I believe, between Judas and between Mary. And, and, and I can't help but to think that was put there for that very, very reason. There's so much to see even for ourselves in that. So John tells us that Mark 3, uh, these, these verses 3 through 9, happened the previous Saturday. So just a few days before, but it was a flashback scene. So let's look at verse 3 through 9. And he says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. And it doesn't tell us this. We don't know this from scripture, but more than likely, Simon the leper was someone that Jesus healed of his leprosy. Uh, we know that a leper would not be hosting a dinner party. That would not be uh, possible. They would not be allowed to do such a thing and have get-togethers in this person's home. So more than likely, this was somebody that Jesus had healed. And Jesus was reclining at the table, and it says this woman came with an alabaster flask and anointed him and it makes a point in the, in the text to say this was very costly. This was an amazing, amazing act of love and devotion. Look, this is not some oil that you go to Walmart or the dollar store to pick up. This was a huge financial decision that she made. A huge financial decision. In fact, if you take this and translate it in today's dollars, more than likely it's somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty to $50,000 in today's currency unreal this was a special nard a, a massage oil that was extracted from a plant in northern india near the himalayas and it just wasn't something you would carry around in your purse or on your person this was a year's worth of wages incredible and this was not just a family heirloom which would probably be used for either her wedding or, or her death but this was her future this was her fallback plan in case something went wrong financially for that family so think about that. Get the significance of that picture here. It, it would be equivalent to us taking our 401k or if you're older and have a great deal of savings just to take a big, huge chunk of that and you just, I'm giving it over to Jesus. I'm giving it to him. Unreal. She pours out her future. She pours out her security, her life savings. And, and look what it says. I love this in verse 3. It says, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. She just, she just said, I'm, you know, I'm done with this. This is over. I mean, this was made with like a, a, a neck that where you would just a drop or two at a time. And, and she says, I'm just emptying it all out. I'm breaking it and I'm pouring it out upon Jesus. Why in the world would she have that kind of reaction to Jesus? That she would give away her life savings, her security, everything in order to worship Christ. Well, this woman, Mary... Is, her name is Mary of Bethany in the scripture we refer to as Mary of Bethany. Let me tell you a little bit about Mary of Bethany. Look in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. If you've been in church at all over your lifetime, you probably have heard the story, but I want to read this for you. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary. This is Mary, the one we're looking at who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to, to, then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, 
Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. He's saying, I'm not pulling her away from me to go help you, Martha. So amazing story, this Mary who's sitting at Jesus' feet, just listening to Jesus, admiring Jesus. And Jesus isn't criticizing ministry of hospitality, of serving. In fact, Martha was well within her rights during this time period to have felt the burden of responsibility of serving her guests because that was her home. But she missed the point that Jesus Christ was sitting right in front of her, yet she found other things to do and doing them out of anxiety. So a couple takeaways. Martha isn't serving out of love, but she's serving out of anxiety, out of duty, out of obligation. Let's bring that home a little bit, right? How many of us, the ministries that we do and the ministries we do for others in this church or outside this church, that so many times our motivation is simply duty, I signed up, I guess I got to do it as long as I got to do it, but I can't wait till that commitment's over so I can be done with that. Uh, You know, and it's inconvenient. It puts me out. It makes me go out of my way. It makes me be more organized because I have to do this ministry. And we serve out of anxiety. We serve out of duty. And Jesus points out to Martha the fact that she's serving out of anxiety. Yes, she's missing the main thing, which is the bigger point. But the truth is Jesus points out, Martha, you're, you're serving out of, you're anxious and you're troubled. You're worked up over this stuff. And so Jesus is telling Martha, that the demands of the world are always going to be there in front of her. But he's not going to be there forever. He will not be there, but the demands will always be there. And then I think the, the a big takeaway for us is this on, this, on this passage. It's a great temptation to serve at the expense of being fed spiritually. It's a, a great, great temptation to try to do and do and do and do, but not be fed spiritually and nourished. What's going to happen if you do that? Obviously, you're going to crash and burn because you're serving out of your own strength, your own abilities, your own power, and there's no love that's being worked up for Jesus. And then the outpouring of that, which is my ministry to others, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing's, that's not going to happen because it doesn't come naturally for us. It has to be a God thing. And so Mary realized how precious this opportunity was just to sit at Jesus' feet and to learn from him. And I love what Jesus said. He says, but one thing. I love that, that term, one thing. He says, one thing's necessary here in this situation. Just one thing. And Mary, she chose that one thing. What is that one thing? It's sitting with Jesus. It's being with Jesus. It's enjoying Jesus. It's admiring Jesus. As I read this text in, over the years, I can't help but to cross-reference to a passage of Scripture, Psalm 27, because there was another guy back in the Psalms, David, who talked about one thing that he desired and he wished. In Psalm 27, 4, David says this in the Psalms. He says, one thing, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David saying, and you know, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, the special presence of God was present in the tabernacle and in the temple later on. 
And David said, that's where I want to be as much as possible. In fact, in another psalm, he said, I would rather be a, a door holder in the temple of God than to, have, to, to, to be in the luxurious tents of the, of the wicked, just feasting and partying. He's saying, I'd rather be a servant and holding the door there so I can be in God's presence than doing all these things that feel good and seem right and, and make me feel, feel really, really significant and fulfilled. But in the end, these things lead to death and destruction, but being in God's presence. And he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You know, people who don't like each other might glance at each other, right? You ever, you ever have to do that? You walk by somebody and you're like, oh, no, I don't really care for them. Here they come. All right, let me act like I'm using my phone or something so I, can, I don't really even have to look at them coming. Or I'm on my phone and act like I'm talking. Uh, in fact, Harrison showed me this app. Some of you might want to download this where it'll actually, it'll fake ring you with a, with a caller ID if you want to avoid somebody and not talk to them, so you can just get a call. It's not really a call. And so, it, yeah, sorry, Harrison's friends now. You're on, you're, you're on to Harrison, all right, about this. And so, and so you, you know that feeling when, you, when that awkward moment when you're walking by somebody and you're like, I do not want to see that person, and, and you just glance at them. And then somebody who's your friend, you'll look at them, and you'll be polite. You'll look them in the eye for a few seconds and speak to them and acknowledge them, shake their hand, and say how much you appreciate them. But honestly... Whose eyes do you gaze into? Who do you gaze upon? An extended, long stare. Back when I was youth pastor, we used to do a fear factor game with the students. And in the fear factor game, you know, it, it was really hard to defeat the, the kids. I mean, they would do, some of them would do anything for, you know, the prize that I would give at the end. And, I mean, some of the most nasty stuff that you could buy at Walmart to eat, cow's tongue, you know, liver, all these things, nothing that would be harmful to them. But we would do those things. There was times where Les brought a snake, and they had to stick their hand in a box without knowing it was a snake and have to keep it in. If you jerk it away, you're out of the game because I'd have to eliminate people. And, and I thought of this one, and it was actually really, really good, really effective, was you have to, okay, we're, we're going to pick out a, a, a female out of the audience, guy, or if it's a girl, a guy, and bring them up, and you have to stare at them in the eyes for like two minutes or something like that, without blinking, without looking away. I mean, you could blink, but you couldn't look away from them. And that was a lot harder than you might imagine, because it's tough to just, somebody who you just are a casual acquaintance with, or just know, just to stare in their eyes. We know who we stare in the eyes of our lovers. We gaze upon those who we truly, truly love. And that's what David is getting at in this, in this passage. He's saying, I love to gaze upon the Lord because people who are in love will gaze at each other. They will. You, 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 you see them sit them across the table in a restaurant, and they just want to look in each other's eyes and talk because they're in love with one another. And for some of you, this should honestly be a test of your love for Jesus. Obviously, you can't gaze at him eye to eye, but you can be in his presence. You open his word and hear his voice. And for some of you, the two minutes of being in scripture on occasion when you do that is the most horrible two minutes of your life. You can't wait to get busy doing your day and doing your thing because you don't feel comfortable being in the presence of your Savior. And that's a bad thing. What's it say? In a human relationship, that would say there's a problem at the heart of your relationship. You don't want to be in the, with this person. You don't feel comfortable gazing at them. Problem. But with Jesus, not a problem because I believe the right stuff. 
I go to church. I do these things. But David said, I went, I went to gaze at Jesus. I want to gaze at God's presence. I want to be in his presence and gaze upon him. And so, Mary of Bethany, what did she do? She sat at Jesus' feet. She loved Jesus. We see the kind of person who would just pour out their future. Someone who loves Jesus that much. And by the way, this same Mary of Bethany was the one that Jesus rose her brother Lazarus from the dead. And so when you see that kind of power, it can't help but to change you. And I can't think, help but think of like Regina. She's nodding right there. Regina's story today, God has radically changed her life. And the love for Jesus is just evident in her, her words and her video. Because when God shows up and he does something powerful, you know, for those of us who have been pretty squeaky clink, clean in our life, we grew up in church, we didn't do a lot of bad things, you know, we don't really maybe appreciate what God did for us through Jesus Christ and our salvation. But some of the most thankful, grateful people are the people who said, wow, Jesus saved me from so much destruction. He saved me from myself. He saved me from these horrible things in my life. And I, I love him for that because he forgave me. And some of us need to get in touch with that. The fact that I don't care how squeaky clean you are, you were on your way to eternal separation from God in hell. Because why? Because his wrath was upon you. Because you were born a sinner. And in sin, Scripture says, your mother conceived you. You came into this world as a sinner. God's wrath upon you. But Jesus is the one that sets us right before God. He forgives our past. He forgives all the destruction that is upon us. And so no matter how squeaky clean your past is, God's wrath, the same as somebody who lived life wild and crazy. You need Jesus. You need a Savior. And so she realized how much Jesus had done, and he, she delighted in him, and she broke the bottle. She poured everything out. You know, the truth is, we look at the story of, of, of Mary, and we know that, you know, it seems crazy that she would do this kind of thing, but the truth is, it's really not that crazy because you are pouring your life out. You're pouring your finances out for the one thing in your life that really matters. I mean, you are, I am, right? We, we chart what, what's important to us in this life, and anything extra we have over top of our bills is we direct it one way or the other. And it can be our pleasure. It can be something that just increases our power. Yeah, it, we, we have a God. We have something that we're investing our resources, our life, and our time into. And so it really isn't that crazy because she understood that Jesus was everything. And she understood that she wasn't going to have Jesus there forever. And the one thing in your life eventually rises to the surface. You'll see if you will be willing to look at your time, your energies, your passions, your goals in life, and you'll see what your one thing is. And Jesus, if you're a believer, Jesus demands to be that one thing. He desires to be that one thing. He wants your life to be about him. And if you know Jesus, I believe he will become your greatest treasure over and over, over time. And I think as he does, as you're in his word and as he's working all things for your good and his glory, that he's going to show you more and more why 
he's so great and amazing. The problem is that I'm afraid in churches there's too many people who are like Judas, that they're good at going through the motions, but they don't really have any true love for Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, those of you who know that you're a believer right now, that you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and there's no doubt about that. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, you know, I, I feel a little discouraged because I don't have that kind of love. I don't have that kind of capacity right now. Well, I feel the same way when I think about myself, that it's easy to look at our lives and think, you know what, I don't love Jesus near as much as I should. In fact, it's really kind of hard to love Jesus because he's not like right there with me. But God wants to enlarge our capacity to love him and fill us with joy just to, to be more and more delighted by him if we're willing to allow him to do so. I'm concerned that we don't allow that to happen because, again, we're just chasing after other things over Christ. And I think too many times it can be good things. I think sometimes we define Christianity as more theological knowledge. Like I, get, I get to know more stuff, and then I feel like I'm making progress. Or, you know, moral and political issues, I kind of land on the right side of that, so therefore I'm, I'm a pretty good Christian, or I'm involved in ministry or service or helping the poor. And all these things are, are great things, but it's not the one thing. It's not the, it's not the main thing. What should define a Christian is our intimate, enthusiastic delight and pursuit of a person, Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What should define a Christian is our intimate, enthusiastic delight and pursuit of a person, Jesus Christ. And so in contrast with Mary's great expense and her costly worship, Mark, and let's get down to verse 10, Mark then shows us Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity. I mean, honestly, if anyone ever had the appearance of being a true disciple of Jesus in the history of the world, it would have been Judas, right? I mean, he, he was one of the twelve, the insiders. He followed Jesus around literally. He seemed to care about ministry. He seemed to care about stewardship. Look at verse 4 and 5. He, he's, uh, he, he's right there. We learn from, from uh, the Gospel of John that Judas was, in fact, John names Judas as being this person. There were some who said to themselves, why was this ointment wasted and like this and poured out like this? I mean, this could have been given to the poor. And they scolded her. So Judas is leading the charge there. He's saying, look at this waste. Look at this, I, the poor, look, we got these people we could help. So you look at Judas, he seems like a good guy. Like, he's like good motives, like, yeah, you're right, maybe that, that would be a better use of that money. Think about that. This is such a, a waste of, of, of money and resources. But the problem was Jesus did not love, or Judas did not love Jesus. And interesting, as you study the Gospels, the Gospels organize the list of disciples, and they're almost always the same order. Uh, Peter's always first, Peter, James, John, Andrew, so on. And many Bible scholars believe that these are sorted and ordered in the way that d displays the intimacy, the closeness toward, G uh, toward Jesus. And it's interesting that in these lists, Judas is always, where? Last. He's always the last one on the list. Why? Because we know Judas 
He wasn't a true lover of Jesus. Judas did not care. He didn't accept Jesus as Messiah, probably, for sure, and definitely didn't accept him as the Son of God. And he's in charge of the money bags, right? That's his job. He was the treasurer of the group. Jesus knew what he was doing when he allowed him to have that. And Judas takes a measly $500 to betray Jesus. About 500 bucks, modern times, our money value of what he took in order to turn Jesus in, to betray not only Jesus, but his friends as well. Compare that to the costly sacrifice that the lady made who he's criticizing. Judas only cared about one thing, and that was his selfish gain, his greed himself. That's all he was about. You know, many people do the same thing like Judas. I, I see this all the time in ministry. If you've been around church for a long time, you think of the people who come in and out where things get tough, things get hard, there's a crisis at hand, and they come to church, they run to Jesus to get them out of that. You know, it's kind of maybe a, a form of health, wealth kind of gospel where Jesus is going to make it all right for me. He, you know, he'll fix my problem, and he'll take care of me. And so we run to church, we run to Jesus when things are bad, but then when things turn good, what happens? We're right back to where we were before. And so Judas, I mean, at some level, he was using Jesus. He was taking advantage of the situation. More than likely, he stole from the money bags that he carried around. And ultimately, he turns and does the ultimate evil that he turns Jesus in and betrays him. But yet, he's the one that wants to say she's wasteful. And then verse 6 and 7 again, but Jesus said, he defends her, he says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You know what's interesting about Mary as well? It seems like that Mary knows that Jesus' death was coming soon. It was going to happen very, very soon the way that Jesus worded this. And we think, wow, how, how did Mary know that? You know, as opposed to the disciples, my guess is Mary actually listened to Jesus, right? She actually heard when he said it again and again, look, I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to raise again. And the disciples are like, hey, I'm going to be first in the kingdom. I'm going to be the greatest. Jesus, who's going to be, who's going to be top in the kingdom? They're busy with themselves, with their selfishness. What's my place? And Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet, just taking it in, just absorbing it. And we do that as well. What's in it for me? When it feels good, I'll do it. I'll help you. I'll serve you. I'll minister for you. I'll come to church when it feels good. But when it's not so good, Jesus, then I'm going to do my own thing when it's not working for me. And you see, and it's a selfishness, the DNA of sin, selfishness which is we make everything about us. And look, that's really not that strange when you think about it because that's our perspective, right? That's, that's how we see the world, through our lens. But that's where salvation and, and, our, and, and the Holy Spirit and Jesus make such a radical difference in the believer's life. If you want to wonder what radically changed when you put your faith in Jesus, it was the fact that now you have the ability and the capacity to see everything in life through the lens of 
Jesus? And how does this advance his kingdom, not my kingdom? And the, and the scripture is constantly talking about the fact that as Christians, we can walk in the flesh, we can be absorbed with the flesh. So we can easily live in the flesh, what's in it for me, what I get out of this. And it's so subtle, but the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to live differently, to walk in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. He gives us the ability to do these things that are so counter our nature. That's what Jesus does for us. So Mary actually listened. And then, as wild, he says, you will not always have me with you. And he said, this was to anoint my body. So once again, Jesus is predicting his death. Once again, he's telling them, look, what's going to happen here in a few days? This should be no surprise to you. Yeah, there's people who look at Jesus and read scripture and think he was a victim. He was, you know, this happened to him. He was taken against his will. This was orchestrated from the beginning. This was the plan of the Father. And he told his disciples again and again this was going to happen. And they just didn't get it. And then I love verse 9. Jesus really just adds just something special for Mary here. Just kind of rewards her by saying, you know, this story is going to be proclaimed over the whole world. Uh, what she's done in memory of me. And here we stand today doing that very thing, right? We're, claim, we're proclaiming Mary of Bethany. Wow, what an outstanding woman. What an example. And so here we are a thousand years late, a couple thousand years later, and we're singing her praises, and Jesus said that would happen. And you know what else it shows me? That Jesus knew that the gospel was going to be proclaimed in the whole world. He knew what was going to happen, that his gospel was just going to just go like a fire across the nations, that his word would be spread, that people would hear the gospel because he commanded us, his disciples, to go and tell it. And the disciples, the apostles, those who followed behind them, they did that very thing, and it's still being done to this day. Jeff Dowdy was here last week. He's going to Brazil to spread the name of Jesus. We have missionaries that spread the name of Jesus. He's called us to spread the name of Jesus in this culture that's becoming more and more post-Christian. And so he says it's going to be proclaimed and at the time it's being proclaimed, this woman's faith and her sacrifice and her worship will be mentioned as well. So we got Judas and we got Mary, both who claimed to be followers of Jesus. Both had an appearance of commitment. Judas following Jesus around every day, all day, for three years, doing good deeds with the other disciples. And in the end, he loved himself and he loved money more than he loved Jesus. And Mary showed that she loved Jesus, and she backed it up by, like Brian talked about, her actions, her faith. Faith, faith isn't faith if it doesn't act. The, the nature of real faith means it does something. It, because if you believe something, you're going to act upon that. And this woman believed and knew that Jesus was who he said he was. And she responded accordingly. So, examine your heart. It is a compass, your heart is. It's going to direct you to your love. The, the, the direction of your love is determined by your heart, what's, what's in your heart. And so easily, you look at your life, and you can see where you're going because you see what's in your heart. And so we examine it, and we say, do I really love Jesus? Look at the choices we make. 
well, Pastor John, I just, I don't have time to read my Bible, but yet we have time to grab our electronic device every morning and spend, you know, 20, 30 minutes on Facebook. Well, you know, I just don't know how to lead my children, yet there's so many devotions and resources that anytime you can grab those things and say, kids, you know, I, I, I'm not really an expert, you know, I'm no theologian here, but we're going to read this devotion and pray at the end of it. So we make choices that show what our values are, what really matters to us. And here's the thing. Some of you, you, you think that in these times with Jesus, that it's going to be like fireworks going off and it, it should be this supernatural, like crazy experience every single time. But think about it, if you're married, I mean, your relationship with your spouse most of the time is sort of humdrum and it's normal and it's, but there's that love that drives you. And so Jesus meets us in the ordinary moments of life. When we open our, the scripture up, he says he will meet us there if our hearts are right and in it. And we say, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. Help me to see your truth. Jesus, I want you to be the one thing in my life. Or as I've mentioned before, Jesus, I want to want you to be the main thing in my life. Just be real in your prayers, in your asking. Because your heart, if, if you're there, if that's what you're asking of Jesus, that's a good sign that your heart is full of love for him and you need to just continue to grow in your appetite for him and his word. And so here, here's the question. And this falls back to exactly what Brian talked about today. What are you willing to do with your schedule that will help deepen your relationship with Jesus? What are you willing to do with your schedule? If you love me, you'll obey me. So if the love is there, the obedience follows. I'm going to cultivate the habits, the rhythms, the routines. You know, those things, sometimes we look at those as bad things, but all they do is they, they define the priorities and that way we don't have to make the decision every day. Oh, should I read my Bible today or not? You know, should I, should I get in, my, in the Word? That's done for you, all right? You're in a habit. It's a done deal. You've already determined ahead of time that's a daily task that's going to happen. And it's not the actual doing it is where you meet with Jesus. It's the heart that engages the truth. And Jesus engages you. And you cry out and say, show me, reveal to me yourself, your value, your worth. And some days it's like, yeah, amazing. You can't help but tell your spouse, look what we read. You know, this is amazing what we read today. And other days it's like, that's good, that's solid, I need that. Thank you, Jesus. And you then start living your day, living out that truth that he showed you and revealed to you in his word. So don't look for the extraordinary. Look for the ordinary. And start those habits and routines which will put you in a position where you can know Jesus. But here's the final plea. Judas. Judas would have been sitting right here. Judas may have even been in the praise band, running tech, being actively involved, for sure taking the offering, right, and counting it in the office later. He was all about busyness. You look at Judas and like, man, that guy's such a servant. He's like always like just being there and serving and doing. And look, look, he, he loves the poor, look, because he's like, man, guys, let's think about these people that need help. This is a, a man who we would have possibly admired. Yet he didn't love Jesus. And we know that. There was no affection for Jesus. It was all about himself. At some point, he said, 
I don't believe Jesus to be the Son of God. I'm looking for an opportunity to batten my pocketbook, make life better for me. I pray, honestly, I pray there's no Judases here. Allow your heart to be real and honest before God. Ask him, why don't I love you enough to desire to hear from you in your word on a consistent basis? Why am I not pursuing you with more intimacy and passion? Why am I not willing to sit at your feet? Why is it so uncomfortable for me to sit there with the word exposed to me? Probably for a lot of you, it is just a, a matter of you're not in a routine and a habit. You don't have a rhythm. But for some of you, it's much worse than that. It truly is a problem at the very heart of your relationship. I pray that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, all you do is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. You look at the cross, say, Jesus, I need you. I need what you provided for me, the righteousness that you provide for me, the forgiveness of my sins, so God's wrath will no longer be upon me, but your righteousness will. And I, I, I give myself wholly and completely to that today. I trust you as Lord and Savior. And you proved who you were by raising from the grave. You're something amazing. You're not just a religion. You're a person that I can truly, truly worship and admire and give my life to. Will you do that today? Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Mary of Bethany and her extravagant worship.